1: Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow.
0: And I am your other host, Susan Fox.
1: And with us is Jeffrey Morris. Susan? He's a um,
0: filmmaker, amongst his other accomplishments. He has a Kickstarter going for the Eagle Has Landed sci-fi documentary exploring the origins and cultural impact of the Eagle spacecraft from the classic science fiction series Space 1999. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this
1: is one of those fun Kickstarters that that uh, I mean, this is everybody who was watching Space Space 1999 at the time wanted their own Eagle. I oh mean, yeah, just
2: all of them. How many oh, yeah. of
0: them did they blow up? I mean, it's not like they could build more.
2: They blew up a lot of eagles. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they must have had some extra eagles somewhere, you know, because they, they were...
1: Uh, like a whole, like a whole hangar up.
2: full of them. A
0: whole full, like the whole moon yeah, they, full.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, there were... Uh, I mean, it, the thing that was so cool about eagles is that they... Uh, they had all those different variations, you know. It was like this workhorse, and you could you had the you know the, the freighter version and the you know the lifting version and the rescue and you know you know what I mean there were all these different versions with all those different modules in it and stuff like that. So I think there was something really cool about uh, how the eagle um, looked and functioned and it and it felt uh, like a a real spaceship, something that could actually exist. You know that was a so I think for a generation of young people, especially ones who are watching uh the apollo missions and that sort of thing you know the hardware felt like there were there was a relationship and yeah right so it, because
0: we just yeah. seen the lunar module and this looked like sort of the next you know a generation or two later and, and exactly. Completely plausible. yeah exactly
2: yeah exactly yeah absolutely so right. how how i mean this is just
1: these are just dumb questions because i don't know but how long was an eagle supposed to be
2: Ooh, gosh wow now that's a good one i um I bet we could look it up real quick. Um, <laughs>
0: Probably. They, was, were they were big. They stopped. were they were like it, it pretty big. You like know? an 18-wheeler. Um, it's big.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I, I would think of it as about like that. That's about this kind of size, like an 18-wheeler, wheel, yeah. Yeah. That is a really interesting question. No one's ever – I haven't even pondered that before. There is a guy in – so here's an interesting – okay, there's a guy in Denmark who has built a quarter-scale eagle, and it's about 25 feet long. So that would mean – and Eagle's probably about a hundred feet long yeah, that, yeah yeah that would mean that sounds about right yeah so there you go so yeah.
1: so who built the original eagle for the uh, for the effects for the series
2: um you know it was uh, it was created by a gentleman named Brian Johnson who was a, a visual effects supervisor uh, you know he had uh, cut his teeth early on with uh, 2001 a Space Odyssey mm-hmm. and he was all- have
0: to be what else was there before that
2: <laughs> <laughs> well that certainly was the the greatest Uh, example of science fiction I mean I I think it still is the greatest example of science fiction actually but certainly at the time anyway he worked on that and you know he he had some involvement with the moon bus that Douglas Trumbull um designed and built for the film and I think he he had ideas that he wanted to continue and expand so when uh you know he worked on some of the other Jerry Anderson shows and um when he got approached to work on Space 1999 uh he uh, decided to really go to town and create this really cool work workhorse vehicle, you know, for it. So that was uh, Brian's, uh, um, you know, creation. And they built like a 44 inch one that was uh, huge and heavy, and you know, they, they, mm-hmm. it actually eventually like had problems. You know, even like um, you know, they, they had to suspend them from wires or armatures or things like that. Right. And this is before motion control, like they used in Star Wars, the first Star Wars film, you know, and everything. So no computers. Multiple exposures, uh, you know, uh, you know, handheld dollies, all that kind of stuff. But Mecha- they...
1: mechanical compositing, because
2: yes, yes, exactly. You know, uh, yeah,
1: uh, and and uh, uh, single pass compositors as well. Um, there, mm-hmm. you didn't have the multi pack compositing like uh, like you had with Star Wars and what Robbie Blaylock was doing.
2: Right, we didn't the optical printing and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So.
1: Where was where were the effects done? What uh...
2: they were done at uh, Bray Studios in London. Mm -hmm. So um, you know it was uh, it was near Pinewood. Like uh, Pinewood is where they were doing the 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 sets for the series and that sort of thing. And Bray was nearby, sort of uh, adjacent, you know, a few miles away. And that's where they did all the uh, models and miniature work and everything at Bray.
1: We saw some CGI in your Kickstarter trailer. Is that yes your, your work? The, the that is, of well, those, uh,
2: those are shots that I designed, but I worked with a, a team, um, to put them together. So, um, I worked with a, a gentleman who, uh, he and I developed the animatics in uh, Maya, mm-hmm. um, his name's James Messino and James actually works with a, a, te- a group out of, uh, New York. Uh, and they do a lot of really cool, um, visual effects for things like Star Trek, Picard. And, you know, he, he actually worked a lot on the, uh, Enterprise D scenes and stuff like that for, uh, the season three of Picard, which was awesome. And then, uh, but anyway, he and I worked and designed it. I kind of pushed him on what I wanted the shots to look like. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was big for me was that if we're going to bring the eagle into the realm of CG, obviously the people doing CG eagles and lots of art and things like that, but I wanted to do visual effects shots that really were an homage that felt adjacent to the kind of effects they were doing Mm -hmm. 50 years ago. You know, I didn't think, like to go and bring the eagle and and, and suddenly make it look like a modern, you know, space fighter or something like that, which I think a lot of people would do, or make it feel like it was in a video game cutscene, which is what I think a lot of visual effects look like nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted this to feel like an effect shot from 50 years ago. So we really took our time and really thought it through. And then I worked with a company uh, called The Lightworks. Uh, There's a gentleman named Tobias Richter, who is uh, a famous uh, VFX artist who's done a lot of uh, Star Trek stuff and uh, Star Trek online ships and a lot of the fan films and different things. He's worked with me on my film Oceanus, and uh, Tobias is awesome. He's in Cologne, Germany. And so Tobias uh, took our motion pads, and then he – tweaked them and and uh did the renders and everything so that's how we did those shots and i'm super happy with how they turned out and i was obviously very very nervous to have brian johnson see those shots oh
1: gosh and, uh, yes oh yeah that's oh, yeah, that actually
2: probably one of the most nervous moments of my life knowing that brian johnson was going to see this but brian loved them he actually thought they were fantastic and so one of the things we're talking about doing is working together to create new effect shots for the documentary when uh, when we do it
0: so who else are you interviewing in this documentary
2: um, well, we're interviewing Barbara Bain, who was the star of the show. Oh yeah, uh, which is awesome. I just had lunch with her in Los Angeles last week, which was very cool. Gosh, and, yeah. And uh, Nick Tate, who played Alan Carter, who was the pilot of the Eagle.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and we have uh, Charles Duke, who was an astronaut on Apollo 16, who walked on the moon. Uh, back in 1972. He, and could, he
0: could be the Eagle driver, couldn't he?
2: <laughs> he actually could be an Eagle pilot, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the reason why I included him is because part of the story to me, again, uh, I really believe part of why the Eagle endures is because it it's connected so much to L- lunar module and NASA tech. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I, really, so I think part of the story is to talk about the world before space 1999, right? That when we were mm-hmm. going to the moon and, and and that impact on culture and society. And then the idea of dropping Space 1999 right smack dab in the middle between Apollo and Star Wars. You know, there was a it was an interesting time there. So that's part of why I want to talk to Charles Duke. Um, we also have, um, let's see, Bill George, who's an Oscar winning visual effects supervisor who worked on, I don't know, I don't know probably five Star Trek movies. And he you know, Harry Potter, I mean, he's worked on know, tons and tons of stuff. I mean, Blade Runner. Um, and I'm, I'm super stoked to be uh, hanging out with him. And the plan is for us to go and do a tour of industrial light and magic together. And the reason why I'm including him in the documentary is because one, he's a huge Eagle Eagle fanatic like I am, but he's also, um, he, he, we want to talk about the impact, the Eagle and the visual effects of space, 1999, what they had on, on the visual effects industry, including uh, star Wars. You know, there, there were direct shots in star Wars that George Lucas, But like, you know, the very first shot in Star Wars with the Star Destroyer going right over. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Right. Right. Well, that shot um, is a is kind of a riff on a shot from an episode called War Games of uh, Space 1999. George (laughs) Lucas directly wanted to reference that shot. Oh, that's uh, funny. I did not know
1: that. I had no idea.
2: Yeah. And then also um, the Millennium Falcon. Um the original design of Millennium Falcon actually was kind of Eagle inspired and it was too close to the Eagle. So they had to change it. But if you go back and look at the concept art of the original Millennium Falcon, it looks a lot like an Eagle.
1: That I've and, seen, it looked yeah. very, very much like an Eagle.
2: Yes, yes, yes. So, and then of course um he tried to get Brian Johnson to do the visual effects for Star Wars, which, and Brian was not available because he just signed on to do season two of, uh, space 1999 year two, but he, uh, Brian of course worked with George later when he did the effects for the empire strikes back. He was part of that team. So, yeah. Um, so other people, Michael and Denise Okuda, um, you know, star Trek alums who um, do amazing graphic work and design work. And, uh, uh I don't know, uh, Darren Docterman, Robert Meyer Burnett. Um, oh my gosh, you know, there's a lot of people. We, we have a couple of, uh, there, there, we're, we're in talks on this, but a very, very big A-list actor who happens to be a big space and science aficionado, we're, we're uh, trying to get him on board. And there's also a uh, very, very famous musician from a huge rock band who's also a, happens to be a science and uh, space enthusiast and, and uh, even has multiple degrees in that field. I think um, we know who that is. May we guess who it is? He who will not be named, though, because... <laughs> we uh, we sent it to him yes. and he looked at the project oh. and he said interesting and he's he's definitely intrigued he just happens to be on tour right now so <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah. yeah yeah so we're in talks to see if we can get him on board in the documentary once once he's done with his tour at the end of the year so so it's I mean it's a really cool group of people and then okay, but I'm just talking about kind of the notable the, like I'm including tons of fans in this, right? We're going to talk to uh, the fan group down at Wonderfest, where they have all the wonderful models down in Louisville. I actually, f- filmed them already. Uh, Kevin J. Anderson, we shot with him in Colorado, mm-hmm. and then there's also a group up in Calgary that that are all Space 1999 fans that we're. Uh, um, I've already done one session with them. We're going to do another one. So I'm really trying to include as many fans in this as I can. So
1: I think also. this is I think this is an important documentary because. Um, like you said, Space in 1999 was right there in that gap between. Uh, uh, between
0: Apollo and Star Wars.
1: Yeah, between Apollo yeah. and Star Wars. That was
0: a tough time to be a science fiction fan, I'll tell you that right now.
2: Yeah. yeah. We well, had- you know, but we, we did have some cool things that happened, right? You had uh, Silent Running and. Uh, um, so you had Lo- was cool. Logan's Run, right? Logan's Run and Soylent Green. Mm-hmm. and So it was almost like we there were idea movies happening there. If you think about it, you know, there were movies that had, like, cool, interesting ideas. And I think to some degree Star Wars, when it came along, it sort of it changed the game so much that it kind of redefined it, right? It, and it sort of like it felt like everything after that was kind of um, – I don't know. I, I call it Star Wars damage, not in a bad way, <laughs> you know, but uh-huh. it's like Star Wars kind of kind of impacted everything And unless you look at some, you know, you you get to original ideas like um and obviously Alien was a horror film, but you can see the DNA of things like 2001 mm-hmm. and I even think a little bit of Star Wars in it. And then, you know, you get to uh and then I'm talking about the aesthetic and the look and feel. But you know, you get to like, you know, Blade Runner and Tron, you finally had some some more um, very original sci-fi, but you know, I I don't know. I think I think 1999 um, it, it's a really interesting thing to 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 have existed right there at that time period before that run that started with Star Wars and Close Encounters and you know Superman and Battlestar Galactica and Indiana Star-Jet Jones Post- and yeah and yeah, I, yeah, exactly.
1: I and I'm including Indiana Jones because really Star Wars is not really science fiction; it's fantasy.
2: Oh, I boy, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, I, I, it actually drives me crazy when people call Star Wars sci- sci-fi because um, it, I call it a space fantasy, which is what you know. I, yeah. I think people confuse the mm-hmm. tech elements of Star Wars, you know, with with uh, they go, well, it's got droids and, and and spaceships. You know, it's like, yeah, I know, but those wouldn't really fly. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like
1: Yeah, yeah. none of, none of that stuff would actually none work. Of,
2: None of that stuff would work.
1: Well, it's,
0: levitation in the force and stuff, you know? Come on.
1: It's
2: fantasy. It's yeah. Fantasy. Of, of
1: it's fantasy. Of course, these days, uh, artificial intelligence and, and robotics and droids are coming a long way. Have you seen the demo footage for, from the Tesla bots? Oh, my gosh. Uh,
2: early on. Yeah, it's actually...
1: They have a humanoid Tesla uh, robot mm-hmm. uh, autonomously sorting objects by color and putting them in the correct boxes. But, but and then, can uh, and, it
0: speak bocce like a native?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But when a when a, a human participant uh, uh, takes some of the colored blocks and messes him up, you know, by taking them back out of the boxes or swapping, mm-hmm. putting mm-hmm. it in the, in the wrong box, the robot figures that out and picks up the the block and puts it back where it's supposed to go. And it's doing this autonomously and tracking its own hands. Yeah. And, yeah. uh... uh even ten years ago, that was impossible
2: you
1: know, oh, robots robots had no <laughs> sense of where their no, own hands it's, were
2: it's it, you know it's funny i'm I'm not trying to be a gloom and doom person on this and you know obviously, if this were to go well, it could be a big revolution for humanity. The only problem is that humanity's doing it, so i I have to look at the fact that there could be um Mistakes and issues and concerns. You know, I I do I do wonder if we're going a little too quickly with some of this stuff with AI and robotics at this point. But that's just that's just me. My observation is
1: everything. that where robotics and 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 scientific advance is great, mm-hmm. but wherever humans are involved, there's always a catch, and it's exactly. never it's never a good one.
2: Yeah, that's so, that's what worries me because I have people go, "Well, AI is not evil." I'm like, "No, it's I'm not saying AI is inherently evil or something like that." The problem is that. You know, you know, it's funny, I, I actually have thought about this idea. One of the things that, you know, you, you think about um, old sci-fi stories, like, are you guys familiar with Colossus at all? Oh, yes. Colossus,
0: The Forbidden Project.
2: Forbidden Project, another fantastic pre-Star Wars movie. Um, but, you know, Colossus, right, you, you've got the, the the super intelligence, and it turns out there's a, what, a Russian super intelligence, right? right? But it was always this idea of these sort of singular intelligences, and one of the things that I think we, or Skynet, right, from mm-hmm. Terminator. You know, um, one of the things that I think they're miss that they missed was this idea that you'd have this AI arms race happening where you've got like, you know, um, Microsoft's got one and Google's got one and Meta's got mm-hmm. one and Chinese have one and the Russians have, you know what I mean? It's like, what is that world going to be like, <laughs> you know, and Stephen, and, and- Stephen
1: R. Donaldson, snow crash, mm. uh, same, same theme, you know, same mm. thematic content. Okay. Um, okay, Yeah. The- I note that AI was uh, significantly absent in space. 1999.
0: I don't think it was a
1: concept. Yet. Yeah, they weren't really, they well, they, weren't really exploring that very much. They had, they had computer,
2: much. right? They had computer. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, you always get the sense, well, obviously, computer took up, like, probably two or three city blocks, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that I've, it's, it's interesting, I've, I've actually pitched a couple of reboots for Space 1999, and actually the second one I got really close to making it happen. Um, and, you know, the thing that I was thinking that, that would be kind of interesting, and, and in my sort of the, the way I got to it and kept the name is that we, there were some people from nowadays who were doing – um, some experiments that led to some tra- time travel. And the time travel took them back to 1999, but it did take them to it. Instead of this reality, they end up in an alternate reality, an alternate timeline. So in that alternate timeline, it's it's like the world of space 1999 in a way. And uh, the one thing I, I thought would be kind of interesting is to talk about the fact that they have such advanced spacefaring capabilities, but they don't have the miniature electronics like we do. They didn't, They they focused on big, space initiatives they didn't you know mm-hmm. their, their culture was focused on that as opposed to miniaturizing electronics and doing you know what i mean it's like i think that's a really interesting sort of you know Dichotomy, difference—you know—that we you know, look because at. Because it was
1: so. easier to go big than it was to fix the size problem in the first place.
2: Right, and and, yeah. and it's almost like you have to kind of decide what are we going to put our resources into. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I that was something I, I, think is pretty. So I, I really think of the world of space, nineteen ninety nine. They've got their computer, but imagine it taking up like, like I said, two or three city blocks, and it can, and it still has very rudimentary capabilities to it because humans are doing everything, which I think is really cool. I'd, I'd trade, I'd trade for that world in a second. Well, you know
0: who, <laughs> who really went went deeply into that was uh mary robinette cowell who won uh hugo's and nebulas for her, her book set in a in a world like that uh, mm. the calculating stars and its sequels um it, it was all you know tubes and transistors and no no microcircuitry at all
2: right but you right. know
0: we get all the way up to moon bases and and walking on mars
2: right Right. No, exactly. And, you know, and I also tend to think that that this human society that that was involved and engaged in that kind of adventure, I think that they're probably better for it. I mean, here we are. We've got yeah, we've got iPhones and laptops and, you know, flat panel TVs and all this stuff. But, you know, people are getting in my opinion and I think people are getting, you know, they're, they're losing their creative their uh, creative capabilities are losing their, uh, you know, uh, critical thinking capacity. Their, their media, liter- all those things are sort of declining. And I think the technology has kind of led us to that as opposed to improving us. And I think to some degree, the challenge of going into space or learning to go into space, you know, think about that, that what that what that culture is like, right? If we if we had that example of, like, we're, we're going out there, we're getting out there, we're taking on the challenge. It seems like humans are at their best when they're challenged, you know, and that's, you know, it's just my view, so... Aren't I think we-
0: I think we're much better at remote control robots than than sending people out there. Yeah.
2: Well, at this <laughs> yeah. point, we absolutely are. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, there's no that we, we didn't get good at sending humans out there. Right. We, we, we can get them up into orbit and we can do some things. But that long duration spaceflight and all that kind of experimentation and and all the things that would be necessary to pull that off. We, we haven't built that capability.
0: Not and not and get them back alive.
2: No. Yeah, I can send them out there. <laughs> right. To
1: what uh, you were saying, Susan, Martin Scorsese said of the film Razorfish, which I think was done for like $12 million or something. Yes. Uh, Scorsese wanted to do a very small film uh, because he found that having a really, really big budget, mm-hmm. uh, he found that limiting. Oh, absolutely. Because he wasn't, he wasn't as coming up with as creative solutions as he was on a tight budget.
2: No question. No question. I mean, look at, look at the difference between, um, you know, the first two star Wars films, which were both, you know, even though empire had a slightly larger budget, it's still, they were innovating and they were, they were pushing it. The, all you have to do is just go look at the, the, uh, the star Wars special editions from the nineties. Right. And, and you, you see all these CG creatures and all this stuff, it's like, you know, it's, you look at this, like, that's what you wanted to do. You know, it's, for me, it's, it's what I thought watching. I was like, you know, this is this is a very different world. It's not – it just isn't the same. You know, there's a – like having that low budget, it's like forced creativity. It forced them to come up with ways to innovate and do it. And I think that's, that's part of – I think you're picking up what I was talking about, about, mm-hmm. you know, kind of pushing humanity, pushing us. You know, sometimes limitation is a big part of what, you know, moves us on, moves us to greater heights.
1: I think that's where Space 1999's value was. For the time it was, I mean, it was in the perfect position to take advantage of what – what was coming to be, but hadn't arrived yet? It was. It they was were like... designing
0: the eagle in 1973, and that's uh-huh. and with uh-huh. all just the knowledge you had right, right then and there, and that's what they came up with. It was brilliant, very.
2: Practical. Yeah, abs- well, that's the other thing too. I think for me, you know, I was when I first saw Space Nineteen Ninety Nine in '75, the first time I was seven, you know, and I. am <laughs> But I was I was this kind of weird seven year old, and then I. I was really into the space program and I got it, you know, like, like it was the, my, my biggest loves were like Jacques Cousteau specials and, you know, watching real Apollo missions and things like that. You know, I go to the library and check out all the books on NASA and everything. And I was, I was really into looking at books that had uh, projections of, the future in it, you know, so in other words, the books that shed said, you know, NASA's doing this now, but in 1983, we're going to be on Mars, you know, it's like oh. we're going to have space colonies. And they had such
0: you know, hopes for us. Oh. oh,
2: my gosh, me too, me too. So, God so bless I think, them. <laughs> you know, a big part of seeing the eagle was it was like, okay, you know, there were elements of the show that I, if I'm really honest, that I didn't even seven, I was like, wait, the, the whole moons got blessed, like the moon, yeah, even <laughs> you know, even was at like, age
1: seven. I think as a high school student, I did the math using what limited mathematics I had available to me and I came up with the, uh, I couldn't pinpoint it exactly because I didn't really understand physics, but I did work out the fact that if you applied enough energy to move the moon that far, that fast, you would reduce it to subatomic particles. Right, there would be no Barbara Bain lying on the floor gasping for breath. That
2: would be no. There would be no floor either. (laughs) No, exactly. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just not sure how you how you do it. It just wouldn't. No, and not to mention the fact that okay, I mean from the basic science standpoint, you know, okay, getting out of the Earth's gravity, let alone getting away from the Sun's gravity, let alone traveling to other star systems, let alone slowing down to be close to a planet. You know so that each week you can have an adventure and then move on to another planet and I know that they eventually said that there was some cosmic intelligence moving them along but yeah come on you know what I mean it's just it just seems like someone just didn't really Yeah, get the that sign. was, that I was thought, I honestly cop. thought I felt like people someone watched the the watched 2001 A Space Odyssey and said man that moon base is really cool and they're like you know we should we should do a show about that moon about moon base but then someone said I really like the Star Trek show <laughs> and they're, mm-hmm. they're like traveling around and they're meeting people and doing stuff and it's like how do we how do we do both? How do we have the moon base but have the Star Trek kind of thing? And that's what I think that's how you ended up with it, you know? And uh but uh but anyway, um and- going back to the Eagle, seeing the Eagle uh and the Moon base itself and the costumes and the props and the spacesuits and stuff, it felt like, man, you know, no, we're not blasting moons out of orbit, but but man, having a moon base like that, totally believable at, at the time, you know, the 75. You totally mm-hmm. can believe that 25 years in the future there was gonna be moon base alpha and the eagle and things like that you could totally could you know and so for me we, we i was even remember doing the math of going i'll be 32 and i'll get you know, man i could be up there you know so oh <laughs> so yeah, that, you have
0: family history with nasa don't you
2: yeah my uh my well yeah my father uh, was an aerospace engineer and uh back in the 60s he worked on these uh uh, components called solenoids that uh, you know that control the uh, fluid flow inside uh, NASA spacesuits and stuff. so he did work on that and he you know he was adjacent to the space program he was uh, he had some um, you know peripheral involvement, but he would he talked to me about a lot of it over the years. you know when I was little he we talked about the uh, x fifteen rocket plane and we talked a lot about um, test pilots and chuck yeager and all those sorts of things and he and i would build little model kits of different airplanes and stuff like that and he i remember he he um uh you know he told me about the uh astronauts up on the moon and he would get me up and i was little we watched the transmissions from the moon because a lot of times would come in the middle of the night and we you know would get me up and we watched it it was super cool seeing them bounce around and drive the rover and do all that sort of thing which was really cool and uh last last story about my father was neat he uh he brought home, um, he worked for a company called Garrett Aircraft. Um, and he brought home a poster of the space shuttle for me, mm-hmm. like 10 years before it flew.
0: Ooh. Wow. Yeah.
2: And it was like, wow. it was a concept painting of, you know, the poster was a concept painting. It was like, this is our next step, you know, kind of thing. And they hadn't even built it yet. And and I, I remember seeing this. And he's like, check this out. And I was like, whoa, that's an airplane. It's like, Well, there's like an airplane and it goes into space. You know, that, it, so that was, that was really cool. Very inspiring stuff, you know.
1: Yeah. Awesome stuff. I mean, it yeah. as silly as the science was, it mm-hmm. still, it still sparked imagination and it really oh. served a, a valuable purpose in, in science fiction mythology, you know, in the history of science fiction being right there at that moment in time. It was, an, I, it was an I essential thing.
2: More. I could not agree more. And I do, I do want to add that, um, even though I kind of we kind of got off on the science, I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm not a fan of the show or that I don't like. I mean I I absolutely love, uh, especially the first season of the series. I thought the first season I actually dug the seriousness of it and I really liked uh, characters like Victor Bergman and you know the, I, I thought I thought the characters were interesting and cool and I. Um, I thought it was in it. You know, they, here's the thing, even though it might've had a ludicrous premise, they played it so seriously that you could buy into it. You could believe it, you know? And there were some super interesting episodes of that show, like the one where they go through the black hole or, um, I don't know if you guys remember many of the episodes, but there were some really interesting episodes. Like one of my favorites was one where this alien civilization, they were passing close to the planet. And they're like, Hey, we could go down to that planet. Then all of a sudden, um, the planet starts sending these probes back. That, that, all, that land on the moon and they end up converting the moon to an atmosphere and temperature like the Earth. you know. And it turns out the whole thing was basically a ploy to, to, to delay the moon-based Alpha crew from coming down to their planet because they didn't want humans down there wrecking their planet. Uh-huh. You guys I it's wouldn't blame episode. them. What was that?
0: I said I wouldn't blame them.
2: No. <laughs> there no. goes
0: the neighborhood.
2: No. It, it's a lot of fun. I, I So there there were some great episodes of that show, really, for sure.
0: Well, they uh, lost me in the second season with the lady who turned into animals. I go what?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, moon
0: set, yeah. yeah, moon blasting out of orbit I believe, but this was this yeah. was a step it, Well, the too other thing far. is she
2: she would turn into these really really weird like it was like rubber costume kind of stuff, you know, it was really like, uh, really like Yes, no know, c- no CGI. Like, yeah, it was, well, it was what was what was like it wasn't even like the creature from the Black Lagoon looked way better than this stuff. It was just really bad looking.
1: Oh.
2: You could just tell it was somebody in a costume and you know, it was just, it just, it just got silly, you know, and I don't know why it, it, you know, why they thought they said that like the American stations wanted more action and monsters and this and that, you know, so that's why they went and did it. And it's like, you guys missed what was actually working about the show, you know, so.
1: Oh, absolutely. uh,
2: Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's still both of them, they had their place and, and uh, they definitely have an impact. And I think, you know, the one thing that I found is that the Eagle, um, there are people just, all walks of life all around the world that like love that ship and collect it and so like i know there are people who kind of wrinkle their nose when they see that a you know like the monarch the the, um the sort of uh log line for the series we talk about the cultural impact the eagle there are people like how can you have a cultural impact of a of a spaceship from a tv show this documentary is going to prove it and show it it's it's shocking actually
1: there is so much that of uh, science fiction history that threads its way. I mean, you you don't think about it too much, you know, until you think about it. Uh, there's just so much that threads happens to thread its way through Space 1999. The the mm-hmm. premises and the ideas and and uh, the potential, you know, that mm-hmm. that these shows could ha- these kinds of shows could have, and Space 1999 proved that there was a market for it. Absolutely. And that people could get excited about it. Despite the show's uh, obvious flaws, it still held uh, an important position in the modern culture. Hey, there yeah. was not
0: going to be any new Star Trek ever again. Yeah, as <laughs> of
1: that moment. Yeah. Well, oh, that's true. Who knew? No, that's true.
2: Yeah. No, and, I, and you'd have to think that um, 1999 had some... Minor influence, right, on the idea of, of, you guys have heard of Star Trek Phase 2 that they were going to try to do as a TV show? Yeah, yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah, you know, it, it definitely felt like there was some sort of a, you know, connection there of let's bring, you know, let's bring some, uh, you know, this kind of TV, we can bring, we can have more sci-fi TV like this. And obviously, you know, visual effects were improving and all that sort of stuff was happening too. So, but it was Star Wars that again changed the game because they, once they, Star Wars came out, they're like, let's scrap this phase two thing and we'll go make a movie. So that's, uh, that's how we ended up with the motion picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which
1: yeah. was also not without its flaws.
0: Yeah, but it was the family reunion we needed. It
1: was.
2: No, no. I mean, it's funny. I often say, um, it took me a lot of years to kind of figure out the right way to, to put this, but it's for me, Star Trek, the motion picture is my favorite Star Trek movie. And um, I, I, well, you know, while Star Trek two might be the best, I definitely, the motion picture is my favorite. And there's so many things I could, I could have a whole podcast with you guys about, you know, why I love that movie and why it's so important.
0: Well, maybe so. we should.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Huge fan. I'm, a, I'm yeah. Motion picture is a big deal for me. So
1: there yeah. are numerous fan built uh, sets from, Star Trek, the original series, there's mm-hmm. one in New York, I think one in Florida. Uh, do you know of any fan built sets from space 1999?
2: Um, you know, there's some people, especially like in England who are, uh, who have uh, done recreations of it. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, I just, uh, had a, did a podcast with a gentleman who, who had, uh, elements of the main mission that he, he'd built and they, yeah, definitely there are people who have built, um, you know, sort of, uh, fan versions of it. So cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, that's that's cool. I, mm-hmm. I have yet to see any of the Star Trek recreations. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, wanted to go to Star Trek, the experience in Las Vegas. I oh. never got to. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, that. I that went there fun. twice. I got yeah. to go do that
2: twice, which was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that, it was awesome. I, yeah, very, very fun. You know, one of the elements we're hoping to do with this documentary is actually to build a, uh, uh, a version of the uh, Eagle interior um, full scale. Um, I've got a company that I'm partnered with called Machinarium that's uh, based at Pinewood studios in London. And they worked on, um, you know, a bunch of the Marvel films and star Wars shows like Andor and, mm-hmm. um, the films, these guys are awesome. And they're all big space, 1999 fans. And oh, they are, uh, they're, they're thinking about, you know, um, doing a rebuild that we could use in the show.
1: That so, would be amazing.
2: Uh, yeah, big, I hope the, we can pull it off. I, that's definitely a goal.
1: And what, one of the big questions on, uh, you know, oh, let's go build this thing. Is where do we keep it when it's finished? Right. And how do right. we make money with it? Let's, yeah. yeah. How, how do we make it pay for itself? Because well, it's going to be expensive,
2: you know? Well, I'll tell you how I, what I think we should do is do a deal with uh, uh, ITV, you know, the, the license holder. Mm-hmm. And I think we should create some sort of an exhibition with it for the 50th anniversary. Because the 50th anniversary of 1999 is going to be, you know, Two year in, year right? And so if we build this thing, I, I can't see why you couldn't. Do something like that with it, you know, so I'm going to see about that, you know, I think it'd be really cool.
0: The Doctor Who exhibits uh, exhibitions have been doing very well. I don't see why not. Mm -hmm. So speaking of raising money, she said, switching back to the original premise here, your Kickstarter. We're something like halfway through. You're not quite halfway through the money. We need to exhort people to contribute. Yes, we have. We have backed the Kickstarter.
2: Oh, thank you. It's great to hear
0: because we're team players
2: and I want to see this. (laughs) Yeah, Eventually. very appreciative of it. Um, you know, yeah, so now we we are getting ready to do some big, um, some big, uh, you know, blitzes with uh, the fans here in the coming days. So um, you're going to see a lot. You know, what what happened was we had to move our date a couple of times of when we were going to launch this thing because we were negotiating with ITV to make sure we had the rights to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. So we originally
2: planned on launching on the 21st of August, but then uh, we had to push back. And I think there might have been a little bit of, in the Space 1999 community, we we ad- we did so many ads that I think people are like, okay, we know about your Kickstarter. You know, <laughs> so yeah, we, a- we decided to back off a little bit and, and give them a breather. But now we're going to hit them hard again here. And I think I think we have a, we have a couple of really cool things coming up. We've got a, uh, an original print that's going to be done by John Eves, who is a big Star Trek designer who did the, you know, like tons of ships for Star, Star Trek and mm-hmm. props and things like that. And John is a big Space 1999 Eagle guy. And he's going to do an original print for us. And we're going to do a run of 500 of those. And um, and make that a um, a, a new um, you know reward that's going to come out in the next day. Ooh. And then we also have a, we're going to do a fan initiative where we we'll want to try to get all the Space Nineteen Ninety Nine fans as many as possible to contribute Nineteen Ninety <laughs> Nine you know nah. plus a penny you know. And uh, if we can get if we could get all of the fandom tons of people to just put in twenty bucks, we get this thing funded. It's easy. Oh yeah. You know, so oh, we're yeah. we're gonna we're gonna hit hard in the next couple of weeks. We still have two weeks. We can get it done. So we're going to do that. And if that if that doesn't work out, we have some contingency plans that are in the works as well. But but let's see if we can make this first. I think, you know, one one thing I want to say to to the benefit and to the to to uh, to thank the people who have encouraged this so far, you know, very. I mean, the percentage of Kickstarters that actually make it over one hundred thousand, it's less than like point six percent. Yeah, so I mean, so so we've had a huge accomplishment. This proves that this documentary has interest it proves that there's an audience for it and that we have a lot of support. And no matter what, that encouragement means a ton. And so I still believe that we can get this funded, and I think it's entirely possible. But regardless, this is a huge accomplishment already, and we're, we're super excited and stoked and thankful and, and uh, proud to be making this thing happen. So I appreciate you guys giving us a, a voice here to talk about it.
0: So go to kickstarter.com, search, for, search term, The Eagle has landed, and you will find it.
2: Yes. One more thing. There's a great website we've created that includes fan stories and all kinds of cool stuff. That's uh, called EagleDocumentary dot com, and that's a place you can go to learn all about it as well.
0: Ooh, I'm gonna go look at that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Ladies yep. and gentlemen, we have been talking to Jeffrey Morris, who is the man behind the documentary called uh, "The Eagle Has Landed." The development of the Eagle for Space nineteen ninety nine. Thank you for being on the show. And you have our literal support and our spiritual support as well. Thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you guys so much. And I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you today. It's been great.
1: You have been listening to episode 265 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, September 30th, 2023. Our guest this evening has been Jeffrey Morris, the man behind the Space 1999 documentary The Eagle Has Landed. The Kickstarter for this project is still underway if you wish to contribute. This episode will air again tomorrow, October 1st, at 4 p.m. Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, and again on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you'll be able to download this episode as a podcast from iTunes, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and from our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-fi.radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, please visit patreon.com slash sci and give generously. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. Sci-Fi.radio's The Event Horizon is copyright 2023 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.